Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Empire and Progress in the Victorian Secularist Movement, Imagining a Secular World by Dr. Patrick Corbet. This book is the first extensive historical analysis of the relationship between empire and the Victorian secularist movement. Historians have paid little attention to the role of empire in the development of organized free thought. Secularism as it developed in Britain and its settler colonies was an overtly outward-looking global ideology in a period marked by the rise of scientific rationalism and belief in the logic of a European civilizing mission. Recent scholarship has focused on how the empire influenced British and American atheists on the questions of race, What is missing is an in-depth examination of the formation of secularist ideas about universal progress, ethics, and secular morality. Through an examination of the secularist periodical and pamphlet press, this book argues that the religious diversity of the British Empire helped to shape the ethical worldview of the secularists, providing ammunition for their critiques of Christian morality and the church and justification for their policy reform proposals, both in Britain and the colonies. Patrick Corbet is an independent scholar living in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. He's also associate director with the International Society for Historians of Atheism, Secularism, and Humanism. He joins me today to discuss his latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Secularism. Patrick, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, It's nice to talk about the book. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Um, Yeah, so I, uh, in my undergrad uh, at the University of Victoria, um, started working with, uh, uh, on my honors thesis on the uh, early 18th century Anglo-Dutch writer Bernard Mandeville. And um, that evolved into an MA project uh, looking at atheistic implications in Mandeville's Fable of the Bees uh, and other texts and sort of the, the, the history of modern atheism in, in the 18th century. And um, while I was working on that project, sort of increasingly, you know, one of the things that interests me was, well, you know, with the, the emergence of, of, of like skeptical relativism and, and some of these, uh, ideas emanating about the implications for religion of uh, religious difference as Europe expanded and, and colonized um, beyond the borders of Europe, what that what the implications of that were for uh, not only the positive sense of religion, but also for, you know, religious doubt kind of emerged as a big question for me. And so, you know, when I when I applied to do um, graduate studies at Queens to do my PhD. That was sort of the project that I, I proposed was to go out and look at atheism and empire. And, and initially the, the, the plan had been to kind of be more 
18th century focused. Um, and then sort of both what was available in the archi archives and, and what I was able to dig up uh, in terms of material and time and, you know, all the various things that go into research projects, I got pushed ever more into um, the Victorian period. And so that's how I ended up primarily looking at the, the, the secularist movement in, in the Victorian age. And then these projects themselves, I started that in, well, I started the MA program on Mandeville in 2009 and then the PhD in 11. And um, at the time, a lot of that was still framed by, you know, some of that, you know, the new atheism debates of the 2000s and uh, some of the ways uh, that discussions around, you know, um, September 11th, 2001, the war on terror, the war in Iraq uh, and discourses around Islam and secularism and, and modernity and civilization were um, pretty live topics at the time. So that was part of the framework that, that, or the, the background context for why that, that interest was there. And so, you know, that, that certainly informed how I got to the project, if not necessarily how the project evolved. Okay. Yeah. So next I want to ask you how this particular book came about. Um, yeah. So as, <laughs> um, as, as suggested, it's an outgrowth of my doctoral research. Um, so I completed the uh, dissertation in 2017, uh, and this book is based on that dissertation um, at Queen's University. Um, and so, you know, I, I did the pretty normal thing and worked on adapting the, the dissertation text for a monograph. Um, it's a bit of a different book than I had initially intended. Uh, there was actually a pretty big sub substantive chapter on foreign policy. Um, that was part of the initial vision for the project, but uh, the the kind of the archival trip that I needed to do to wrap up the material for that and to make the chapter really sort of viable was penciled in for the spring of 2020. Um, so it didn't happen. Um, and so the the this book is a project of, in effect, working through lockdown and um, working to recompose a text that had been a much larger graduate study for a more uh, focused um, monograph that kind of tried to laser in on uh, the key points and the key interventions um, of, of the initial dissertation project. Hmm, okay. Well, let's start talking about the context of Victorian England, broadly speaking and the important factors that were coming together to create the conditions conducive to secularist thought. So you write that, quote, secularism was an outward looking project of ethical and political reform that was shaped by an artisan tradition of religious infidelity, republicanism, and civil libertarianism. So can you unpack that for us? The mid 19th century is a period of substantial religious change. Um, and what we see when George Jacob Holyoke coins the term secularism is that he is drawing on an existing radical political tradition. Um, it has its roots in pain at the end of the 18th century, the revived political radicalism after 1815 uh, with figures like uh, Thomas Carlyle, uh, pardon me, Richard Carlyle and the Zetetics, and the emergence of Owenite socialism and Chartism and secular utilitarian thought in the vein of Bentham and the Mills. And so what you see people like 
George Jacob Holyoke doing is weaving together a working class radical political tradition and a religious radical philosophical tradition um, into a project that proposed a uh, progressive secular model of political reform um, that leaned really heavily on the importance of free speech and the freedom of doubt and the freedom to argue that doubt publicly, um, and was generally quite strongly wedded politically to republicanism, although sort of waxes and wanes as a, a central topic, um, and that the importance of not only religious infidelity, but the tolerance and legal acceptance of religious heterodoxy um, as the basis for a, um, a progressive social order. Um, yeah. So you spend some time recounting the biography of George Jacob Holyoke in your introduction, and I wanted to ask you more about him and why you see him as an important figure in your discussion. Yeah, Holyoke's, to me, a really fascinating figure. So he he comes from a, a working class background in Birmingham um, and gets his uh, much of his formal education at uh, Mechanics Institute there. Um and then ultimately is denied uh, an opportunity to become an instructor at the Mechanics Institute because of his religious heterodoxy, um, which I think is probably what helps him drift into to Owenism and becoming an Owenite lecturer. Um, I think that, I mean, perhaps the main reason for focusing heavily on Holyoke through much of the text is that he's the guy who coins the term. Uh, he gets the term secularism. He names his his program of positive free thought secularism in the early 1850s. And so I think his vision of what secularism is or should be is a really strong place to stand and try and analyze the rest of the, the movement and the way of thinking for the rest of the century. And uh, his project, what he coins as secularism, is one in which he wants to move away from what he characterizes as a merely negative atheism and to offer some sort of positive form of free thought that is not merely negation, but constructing something new. And, you know, he goes through a number of different names for this over the course of the 1840s as he's working out these ideas. He's also called at various points, rationalism and cosmism and, and things like that. So, but in the early 1850s, when he settles on secularism, what he's trying to weave together is this secular, this idea of secularism as a kind of middle ground place where both atheists and theists could potentially work together to improve life in this life without reference to the afterlife. And, and he seems to be, and his outward project is to create this um, reformist, progressive uh, uh, middle ground for people to work together. Now, by the 1860s, um, Charles Bradlaugh emerges and um, he founds in the mid-1860s the National Secular Society. And Bradlaugh's vision of secularism is one in which atheism is much more important to being secularist. And um, so there's kind of a tension that runs through the movement for the rest of the century on that question between this middle ground atheism, which is 
open to both theist and atheist who will set aside those theological questions to work for practical reforms in the world, and another vision of secularism which insists upon the kind of prior question of atheism. And so I think the reason I find Holyoke so interesting is both, in a lot of ways, I find that well, what Mike Rechtenwald has described is this the suspensive category of secularism, both kind of appealing and also, to me, really ultimately unsuccessful and self-defeating, uh, that it just opens up so many problems about where one places one feet, one's feet and where one uh, has a basis for analyzing what is right and good in the world, um, that it's both something that you can look at it on the surface and be like, yeah, that's a really fascinating approach to, you know, negating these theological or anti-theological tensions in favor of a reformist politics, but at the same time, um, not really filling or answering the question as it's posed. So in that way, I find Holyoke becomes the, the kind of central figure for me and his vision of secularism becomes the place in which I view secularism from. Okay. Well, your next chapter focuses on Victorian secularists' strategies to compare Christianity to other world religions. So I've come across the idea before that exposure exposure to religions around the world uh, through their imperial projects allows Victorians to see that their set of beliefs was just one among many, and that this newly relativizing perspective uh, opens the door to further religious doubt and atheism. But your research takes this a little further or in a bit of a different direction, finding that secularists went so far as to use this perspective to brand Christianity as uh, historically subordinate is the word you use, and also essentially foreign in a kind of uh, maybe racist, racially tinged sense. So yeah, talk about this. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things to pick up in there. Um, certainly this notion of the relativizing uh, impact of um, religious encounters, you know, so really encountering religious diversity in the empire is not, um, it's not unique to the secularists. It's a sort of much bigger phenomenon that uh, occurs both through the 18th and the 19th centuries. And there's really substantial and really interesting scholarship on, on the topic. So what I was trying to pick up with the secularist movement is if we're engaging them as an ideology. So they've got that ism on the end of secular and they're trying to create something out of it. What is it that they're actually sort of trying to do? And this is where coming back to say some of the inherent troubles or uh, tensions in, in the Holyoke project is that there is this kind of necessary denaturalization of Christianity that has to happen because you know, Victorian England regardless of where one stands on the debates around um, the crisis of faith in, in, in Victorian Britain, the, the period was fit, profoundly Christian, right? The society was still predominantly Christian. And um, to kind of maybe borrow a little bit from, say, you know, Charles Taylor's articulation of, of secularization, the, the background framework of how one approached the world may have been in the process of becoming this secular age that we live in now, but it wasn't, to my mind, a fully complete transformation. And the background Christianity of the society made 
arguing for a materialist and a naturalistic and an atheistic view of nature, morality, and progress as something that still needed to be argued and articulated in a way that sought to denaturalize and dethrone that uh, the, the Christian perspective. And in embracing the material that was already developing in the late 18th and early 19th century of biblical criticism and biblical historicism and, and, and um, particularly German um, scholarship on, say, the history of the Bible, um, the, the free thinkers of the middle century are picking up that material and running with it to a political end. So you have biblical criticism that's not necessarily anti-Christian by any means, but which is in and of itself uh, placing the Bible as into a historical context, taking the text of, of the Christian faith and trying to analyze it in terms of its historical place and time. And then you have figures like the free thinkers who are picking up, um, sometimes not fully picking up, but picking up fragments of these uh, concepts and running with them in a way to try and not only say, well, this is historical, so it's not revealed, but because it is not as old as some of these other traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., it it can't be um, revealed and it can't be the sort of universal faith. It can't be the top of the hierarchy. It is, in fact, one thing among many, and in fact, perhaps in some cases, inferior in its morality and in its um, uh, and in its ideas, and so that's what I'm trying to get at with the notion of historically subordinate. And then the question of the foreignness of it—that is where you get into some of the sticky, um, the sticky questions of of race and also uh, anti-Semitism in the way in which making Christianity foreign has, as part of it. Uh, an emphasis on the Jewish origins of the Christian faith, which I think in, as part of the de-Christianizing agenda raises a number of kind of complicated issues. Yeah. Did you want to talk about that dimension more? Um, the idea that Christianity is, um, uh, or that the, these critiques of Christianity would be anti-Semitic to some degree. Yeah. And, and again, to, to pick up on that question again, that, it, it's not an innately anti-Semitic project, right? So um, Jonathan Sheehan's book, um, Enlightenment Bible, picks up on this in terms of um, biblical criticism in, in German scholarship and looks at how people trying to historic, historicize the Bible did so by emphasizing the, the, the Jewish origins of the faith and the tradition. So that that isn't sort of innately a project of othering the faith in a in a negative sense but there is that negative aspect that can be applied to it but the other thing that complicates the issue is that with the free thinkers there has to be a bit of a careful working out as to when the anti-semitism is or the anti-semitic language is a tool of rhetorical convenience and when it's an expression of some sort of animosity towards jewish people in particular and i it's not always easy or always comfortable to try and navigate that. Uh, I think a really good example of this is, you know, the prior to the coining of the term secularism in the 1840s, Charles Southwell, who, who had founded this atheist paper, Oracle of Reason, in the fifth issue publishes this um, really 
grotesque attack on biblical morality called, and it, the article is titled Jew Book, and it's attacking the, the Bible as this Jewish influence and emphasizing immorality in the Bible as this Jewish characteristic. Um, but as, uh, you know, one of the, the, the lead scholars in this field, Edward Royal, will point out um, that same person, Southwell, played Shylock on stage in a production of Merchant of Venice, where he then presents Shylock as a hero, right? So that, it, and it's pretty clear in in the in Southwell's article, Jew Book, that part of what he is doing um, is being deliberately inflammatory in order to draw um, uh, the suppression or oppression of his text by the state, right? So there's anti-Semitism as a rhetorical device. And anti-Semitism is a political belief. And I think as you look across the, the scope of the Victorian secularist movement, both in its pre-secularist period in, say, the 1840s and through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc., is that you will see both of those things happening. And say in the character of Holyoke, there are times when a particular, in particular, uh, language that is very deeply anti-Semitic about Jewish government coming to take over Britain appears, but it's also very, seems to be very specifically part of a partisan attack against Benjamin Disraeli by someone who was wedded to a Gladstonian liberalism. Um, and in their practical politics, the, the free-thinking movement, the secularists actively supported um, Jewish emancipation, Jewish legal emancipation, um, Certainly to self-interested ends to some degree, because Jewish emancipation included reform of the oath that it would allow um, Jewish Britons to give evidence um, without having to take Christian oaths. And that was something that um, uh, Holyoke and the secularists themselves wanted. But nevertheless, they 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 did support that project of, of Jewish uh, legal emancipation. So there is a project of denaturalizing Christianity that part of what it wants to do is to articulate that it is not a natural given component of British social life. And part of that project means invoking its non-British origins, that Jewishness of its origins. Part of that is rhetorical expedience for using anti-Semitism to make um, political or religious points is used, sometimes quite odiously, and other components of it is the slippage between um, their practical politics and um, their rhetoric. And I think it ends up being a very sticky situation. And um, Nathan Alexander, in his book about uh, atheism and uh, race, talks very much about the ambivalence that appears in uh, uh, free thought in its relation to race, to race. And I think Precisely that same ambivalence is what we have to kind of see in the issue of anti-Semitism, um, which is to say not to let them off the hook because some of the rhetoric is really quite repulsive, but at the same time is that it's not a sort of straightforward, this is an anti-Semitic movement or it isn't. And I think that's that's the kind of the, the sticky ground that you get on when negotiating these things with the free thought movement. Yeah, that's really interesting. It makes sense, though, that basically the reality on the ground is is just really complicated. And while on the one hand, you have to consider their day, like you say, without giving them a pass, 
it's also a futile project to try to imagine what's in everybody's hearts, right? Um, I'll just also add that if anybody's interested in reading more or hearing more about Nathan Alexander's deep dive into uh, race and the atheistic movement, uh, I think I interviewed him a, f- a couple of years ago, a few years ago. So do look on the channel and you can go listen uh, about that. Okay, so your research also looks in depth at the ways Victorian secularists approached constructing a system of morality. Um, So this is always the million dollar question. So here again, they turned to the religions of the world to what seems to me is like essentially they handpick the best of what they found there. Um, And this led them to feel that the secular way was therefore the superior way because they had uncovered... um, And this kind of draws on the language you were just using, the natural and universal principles of morality. So those occurring, I guess, uh, a priori to these religions. So this sounds at the same time reasonable, as well as maybe rather self-assured. Would you uh, call it that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, some of the... These guys are great (laughs) in some ways because, like, the the movement is, is... primarily kind of working class and artisan. So the, 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 the people who are contributing to the secularist press are not always the most formally educated writers, um, not stupid people by any stretch of the imagination, but they are sometimes, they have often the problems of the autodidact, which means they have consumed a great deal of material from a variety of different sources and don't always have the, um, the framework and structure upon which to to place it in in some ways the order or, or uh, method that might be obvious to people with more formal um, traditional educations, and I think sometimes that results in quite amusing um, outcomes. There's just to sort of as a sidebar, there's one description. I don't think it made it into the book, but uh, I have in my my notes this one article from one of the, I think the national reformer or the reasoner where a very confidently declares that we can see that, um, you know, the Roman Catholic church must certainly have been based on Buddhism because of the similarity of their hats. Um, you know, so you get these, these moments of very kind of confident (laughs) uh, statements that are a little bit on shaky evident, uh, grounds of evidence. But so, um, and I think maybe this is reading 19th century philosophy that uh, bold and confident uh, assertions is is very much of the time as well. So it is very self-assured. Uh, and there are, it, in some of the statements about reform, about the things that will happen when progress happens are, you know, really quite, again, um, amazing, astounding even, uh, you know, that if just secular education would be brought into force, we would live longer, be healthier, be better people, etc. Um, so, yeah, when they when they do go out to look into the world, there is there is a certain degree of cherry picking, certainly, I think. Um, and um, it's also worth saying, since the project leans heavily on the periodical press, there's also a diversity of voices. They don't all agree. Uh, they may are they're rowing often in, in the general same direction, but that doesn't mean they all sort of cherry pick from the same cherry tree. Um, but yeah, the. This is where kind of the relativism that we've been talking about above becomes this rather instrumental thing and second central to the secularist tradition um, because they're not relativists, right? 
relativism is useful for them because it helps them push back against Christian claims to uh, authority. But they're not relativists in the sense that they think everything is equal and fine. They are, in fact, quite dogmatic in many ways about um, that progress has to arrive, arise out of these secular materialist philosophical principles, utility and utilitarianism being strongly one of them. And this is, I think, where we get the clearest tension in Holyoke's brand of neutral secularism. Because, again, if you take it sort of at a face value, there's sort of this suspension um, between two things, between kind of fixed worldviews, one which is materialist, one which is utilitarian, and one which is um, grounded in theology and different modes of moral philosophy. Um, and so in denaturalizing Christianity, the free thinkers sought to naturalize something else, reason, uh, the Coptian idea of altruism, uh, utilitarianism. Uh, and in doing so, what they would try to do is go out and when they would look at the world and they would find useful examples of things that paralleled um, existing moral norms of which they were in support, they would rope that in as being evidence of its universality. And once it became evidence of universality, then it could be evidenced, given as evidence of a natural thing, which is sort of pre-cultural and not uh, particular to any one tradition, any one faith, any one people. And if it was natural and if it was universal, it could therefore be secular and then roped into their project, which for them meant they could present it as superior to the particular which is, say, the local expression of these universal and natural things. So Christianity or Buddhism or Confucianism or Hinduism or Islam become local and particular representations of that which is more natural, that which is more universal, and that which is therefore secular. Right. Okay, so next you look at the Victorian secularist activities or activist activities and messages with regard to colonial India. So the hypocrisy and harm caused by the Protestant missionaries' activities in that country seemed to be an ideal opportunity for strengthening the message for secular governance at home. How did they work with these ideas and how successful do you think they were? Um I think the key thing to do when thinking about success, so we'll take that first and then come back to it, is that they are within a much larger milieu. There's a wider world of liberal debate and criticism going on. And uh, the free thinkers, the secularist movement, were far from the only people who looked at uh, missionaries in India and put the blame on them for things like 1857 and the rebellion. So I... As a relatively small movement, I don't know if uh, any of substantial political changes could be placed <laughs> as, a, as a result of their activities. And I think it's more about them participating in a larger discourse for their own ends, whether it's successful or not. They were trying to articulate a way of approaching these things. So, um, so in the question of success, I would sort of leave that as an agnostic answer because they're relatively marginal in terms of power. What they're doing when they're getting into these critiques of the Protestant missionaries, this is particularly in India, but they, they're they're equally comfortable attacking the missionaries elsewhere. There's quite a bit of material of them mocking quite roundly um, missionaries in Africa um, and in places like New Zealand as well. Um, so it's it's not particular to, to India um, in any respect. But what I think they're getting up to 
when they're doing that is, as you know, they're they're trying to again denaturalize that that legitimacy of the missionary and the illegitimacy of the free thinker at home. So what you see in in things like George Jacob Holyoke's rhetoric is he he says, well, we get called the the sort of heterodox and the infidel and the 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 un, the suspect person at home because we believe a different thing but then you know the protestant missionary goes off to india and preaches entirely against the faith and tradition of those uh, of that place against islam against hinduism uh, and uh, you know are they not the infidel are they not the uh, socially destructive force? If we are the socially destructive force in Britain, is this not the socially destructive force abroad? Um, and then, of course, the rhetorical point you're supposed to take that is if it's the Christian missionary going abroad to preach Protestantism uh, to in India, in Africa, and elsewhere is not a corrosive moral uh, uh, degenerate uh, than presumably the secularist who preaches for a different mode in Britain is them are themselves not a socially deleterious moral degenerate. Makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 the the it's a useful rhetorical strategy, and then, of course, that then has uh, um, political implications. The argument that well. If we're going to take the empire seriously, we have this massively religiously diverse empire in which, realistically, if you take the whole population of India and of all the different parts of the empire, Christianity is, in fact, a minority. Um, it may be the majority at home, but it is not the majority of the, the imperial population. And so the argument that then emerges, particularly around crisis points, and this is one of the things that does turn up, is that the 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 empire makes its most obvious appearances um, at moments of crisis, right? So it's kind of always drifting around in the background. There's always things appearing and emerging and being debated out. But, it, you know, in 1857, you get this kind of flurry of material trying to unpack these things because, of course, there's this massive crisis moment going on in in, in India. Um, and so they're, they're responding to that. But out of that and what we see is that they then start making the argument that well secularism as a neutral ground is the thing that can ensure um peace for the imperial fold because if you create this non-sectarian secular mode of administrative and governance administration and governance education oath law etc totally divorced from um um, sectarian or from um, theological grounds, that in fact, then you have a basis for uh, an imperial system of administration and law that is neutral and which will maintain the peace amongst the colonized peoples. And which, of course, then for them has benefits at home because they would get the benefits of that in a domestic context. When you think about it that way, it seems inevitable. How else can a global community hope to interact together at all? right? Like it just, I don't know, for me, it seems inevitable when you look at it that way. And to try to fight against it feels like fighting the tide. But. Well, and, and I mean, the British, the British were always, particularly in India, they were always trying to kind of walk that complicated ground, right? So the legal pluralism was baked into the British rule there, you know, law for Muslims, law for um, Hindus and and trying to navigate and both 
construct and understand and think about and make these communities into reified legal objects that could then be treated in these different ways by the administrative structure. So I think it's, there's a number of different tactics involved and it's a, it's too big of a kind of complex history that itself changes over the course of the century and then well into the 20th century to get into. But that, that question of how to administer both law and governance in contexts where there is a diversity of religions is a live question, not just for the free thinkers, but for the colonial authorities as well, and for their liberal and their um, socialist critics. It's a, it's a it's a it's an ongoing discussion, and it's it's so that's where you kind of have to take the free thinkers and put them into into their context, right? Because that they're they're pushing that particular rhetoric about the secularity of empire as being the solution but part of and really arguably the main point of that is to is that their eye is on the domestic if you can make the argument for india then you can domesticate the argument for that same sort of uh pluralism um yeah and and it's a really clever way to to go about it because it's super useful at home sorry go ahead yeah no no it's fine and i think that's the that that's the that's the rhetorical point whether i mean the degree to which that is contributing to the successes that are ultimately seen in things like oath reform uh, is debatable because really the the oath reform stuff seems to come more out of the immediate crisis around bradlaugh's election to parliament uh, and his inability to take a seat because of his unwillingness to take the oath, at least initially, that, you know, that these things are uh, open to debate. But I think it's it's for them very useful because it makes it makes these events, these major crises uh, and these major topics, things that are something that can be incorporated into their rhetoric and into their project so that they are both relevant in the contemporary moment intervening in these debates and also keeping their own movement engaged by having an answer to these like questions of the day. I was going to mention as well, it's so interesting. Um, I just recently was learning a little bit about Quebec history because a student of mine was doing a deep dive uh, into the question of why um, even when, uh, when French Canada uh, or the French settlers lost to the British here in Canada, um, the British didn't impose English on the French or um, Protestantism. And it's exactly what you're talking about. There were just too many French Catholics um, concentrated in the area that is now Quebec. And so the British uh, made a administrative decision that it would just be easier to allow them to um, form their own little cultural bubble, even um, to the extent like rule themselves and have s- the distinct laws here. And and so I, I'm pretty sure it was right around the same time, um, early, uh, early 19th century. And so it seems like maybe this was a colonial, British colonial strategy, not only in India, but even affected here in Canada, which is why we have Quebec today. Yeah. And I think it's, it's an important point that there is this big change in the middle 18th century in the British Empire. Um, This is a big body of scholarship, and I'm not going to try and pretend to do it a great deal of justice in this moment. But, um, you know, the, 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 the Seven Years War, uh, where, you know, Quebec is, so the the Battle of Quebec, and then the, the loss of the France in North America, is running around the same time as the, 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 
conquest of Bengal in in India, right? So Bengal was incorporated into the British Empire very close to the same time as um, Quebec is. And so suddenly the British Empire goes from this thing that is largely uh, white-dominated plantation colonies in the Caribbean and settler colonies in um, the Americas to this globe-spanning institution that has a very large Catholic population of white settlers in North America and a very large Hindu and Muslim population in India. And so there is, there's, there has to be a kind of uh, uh, administrative rethink as to how this is going to function because unlike the way they would interact with the colonial authorities in say places like Jamaica or in Massachusetts, the British don't have the same cultural, religious, linguistic affinity with the people of Quebec or India. And so you see a big change, becomes more authoritarian, becomes more uh, bureaucratic. And, you know, there's arguments that the the change that uh, affects the British Empire in this period is the uh, one of the key underlying facts for the American Revolution that comes in the 1770s, right? That, that this alteration of the underlying ideology of the British Empire is generates that conflict. So, so dealing with religious pluralism in the empire has, you know, from the outset of the the modern British Empire in the middle 18th century, um, or sort of the the grand globe spanning British Empire that we think of when we talk about the British Empire, is is itself bound up with these questions of religious pluralism and and diversity and how that is going to be governed and administered. Hmm. Interesting. So you briefly mentioned um, oaths. So let's go back to that idea, um, because this chapter also gets into the interesting question of the function of the oath as a binding legal signifier outside of a Christian or at least religiously homogenous context. And we still have oaths today, obviously, in the legal context. um, And I believe people can legally swear on any book they choose in the U.S. and Canada uh, right now. So I, I have to admit, I've never really thought of it as anything more than a symbolic gesture of one's own commitment to be honest. But in the 1800s, would you say that the oath was thought of as having additional power to compel, like emanating from God, I suppose, and that this then especially becomes a problem in the religious heterodox that was India or any of these other religious contexts within the British Empire? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so just in the contemporary moment, if you look up oaths, say, in British Columbia, um, and you you look at the, the the definition of an oath in the legal statute. It says an oath or affirmation. So oath stands for oath and affirmation in that legal sense. And an oath is a, a, like an oath to God, right? In these, the, the oath form always kind of affirms the, the 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 deity, whereas the affirmation is the secular alternative. It's the I. I, I, I agree to the legally binding principle that I'm not going to lie or I'm not going to break my promise and I'm not going to do that. So when, say, for example, as a, as a member of the public service, I go for my oath of um, oath of, of, of service, um, I affirm because I, being a non-believer, I'm not going to swear upon a deity that I don't believe in. So I, I, I go and I affirm. I say, yes, I, I agree to these I, and I promise not to do to break that 
So there's the key distinction. There's the oaths and affirmations that we're, we're kind of navigating in the present. And, and that is a product of these fights of the 19th century. And it was a complicated fight. I mean, it's, it's, it's going back to the origins of liberal thought in this late 17th and early 18th century. Um, when you look at Locke in his argument for toleration that he makes, he, he has two big exclusions. The first is that you have to exclude Catholics from toleration because they have fealty to a foreign prince. And the second is you have to exclude atheists because they don't have a God whose punishment in the afterlife they can fear. So they can't make oaths because there's nothing binding them to it. And that is core, right? To the whole oath debate, which is that the oath is an affirmation is a, is an oath to God that one will tell the truth in court or or, or obey the uh, uh, the rules of one's office, and those who are in, so initially in the the toleration question is does the oath expand to those Protestants who won't swear it? So in particular Quakers who won't swear oaths. So the first kind of phase of um, expansion of oath reform is you know, bringing Quakers on board and those who want to affirm, even though they're still Christians and, and Protestants. And then, of course, there's the question of Catholics. There's the question of Jewish Britons and whether their oaths would count. And then that leaves the the, the freethinkers. And the freethinkers are, I think, they make a really valid point, which is that they can't, properly speaking, get legal recourse if they have something done to them, because to go to court to go and give evidence, they'd have to swear to a God that they don't believe in. And right out of the bat, if they swear to the oath, they've made perjured, per, uh, they've perjured themselves. They have to lie in order to uh, participate in the system. So the argument being then that uh, why would, how can a functional system demand that sub- substantial portions of its population make liars of themselves in the key moment where we have to expect them to be able to be honest and forthright. And that they use that in by looking at India and by bringing in a religious plurality there. But again, it's another key instance where they are frankly using one side of their mouth to talk about the other, which is the domestic, which is their principal concern. Makes sense. So your next chapter considers Victorian secularist thought as it was impacted by the variety of peoples found across the British Empire to examine how they incorporated current day notions of race, and I think we could call that scientific racism here, uh, into their ideas about progress writ large. So this sounds complicated. It is very. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, And you've mentioned Nathan's uh, Race in a Godless World. I think I've mentioned it. I think it's a very good book, um, and so I'll plug it again. Um, and I think Nathan uses this term "profound ambivalence," and I just I like it, so I'm I'm going to use it. <laughs> uh, but I think it's a really great way of describing it that 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 the free thinkers are ambivalent about race, and they're not always terribly consistent. Um, there are certainly amongst the broad swath of free thinkers, so not necessarily even secular, so atheists and others in the century, um, pretty hardcore racialists. So probably one of the more notable, if a bit fringe at times, is the Scottish anatomist Robert Knox, um, he of the Burke and Hare scandal in Edinburgh, um, and who 
1850 publishes his lectures, The Races of Man, which is really drives to this principle that race is the fundamental human characteristic. And, and uh, by no means do all of the secularists abide by that, or not even most, but it's there. It's a component of the, the thought that's available to atheists and free thinkers in, in, in the century. And you see with, with people like Bradlaugh in particular, um, kind of dalliances with the, this racial, racialism, particularly with the influence of, of um, anthropology and the, uh, the Anthropological Society in London, who are looking at, at sort of human physical attributes as a way of naturalizing racial differences, looking at sort of bone length, skull sizes, and these sorts of things as evidence of fixed hereditary differences between races of, of humanity. So that's there. And the, the free thinkers have to navigate it. And at times they embrace it. And then at other times, or they appear to embrace it again, there's that question of rhetoric versus necessarily the, the, the aim. Um, but I think when you look in particular at the kind of Holyoke branch of the, the tradition, there's a big kind of complicated barrier for them, which is their universalism. So the the immutability of that scientific form of race, that unchanging fixed distinctiveness of, say, white and black, that uh, the racial distinctions, or if you go to Knox, you know, he, the, the variety from Celtic to Saxon, it gets absurd, frankly, very quickly. But, well, it's absurd from the off, but gets more absurd very quickly. But... Um, what I think you see in, in the, where the ambivalence comes from is progress and the universality of progress is so ingrained in the underlying ideology, in the underlying, in effect, faith of the secularists that it really does rub up against the idea of racial immutability. And, and I think that's where you see, at least among the free thinkers that are in the secularist movement, and especially those, I think, at the Holyoke camp, where hard racialism doesn't really seem to quite take hold. Again, we do see it, but it keeps running up against this idea that if we can, and this goes back to the earlier rhetoric of the 1840s, if we can eliminate the influence of priests and the influence of monarchs and get drilled down to um, uh, morality derived from experience, so utility, and unleash human potential through education, everyone will improve. And that universalism, I think, just ends up being so basically incompatible with the notion of racial immutability that the two sort of rub up against each other. And in, in certain moments, certain individuals embrace it and racialist arguments do appear in the free thinking press and there are racists amongst them. Um, but it doesn't quite take root in the, the way that it might and does elsewhere. That being said, um, that doesn't mean they're not fully capable of being racist in some of the more common ways that we would think about it. And what you do see is quite a lot of civilizational condescension. And that's, I think, a little bit different. Um, but it still validates a number of different things in terms of pretty destructive views of people and politics that are, you know, not necessarily very healthy. So again, looking in the 1850s, in things like the explosion of violence in India in 1857, 
the the same people who both a couple of years later and a couple of years before would be writing about the sort of forbearance of Hindu uh, uh, Indians in tolerating the uh, abuse they take from Protestant missionaries are then quite happily writing about how, you know, we don't think that the Christian, the Hindu and the Muslim, we think those are all superstitions, but we don't think they're all superstitions equally bad, that the Christian is better, more rational than these others, right? Because there is this, however much they want to attack their own Christian society and alter it and transform it and recreate something that is secular, they still think that that is the benchmark that the world should be rising up to, right? That that when they talk about progress, their vision of progress is still very much looking like Victorian London, not anywhere else in the world, right? And so that component is there. So there's a, a, a heavy amount of civilizational condescension about what progress should be and where it should be going that does express itself in ways that are... Um, in some ways, very difficult to distinguish from the kind of immutable hierarchies that the racialists would express, right? The same people are on top, the same people are on the bottom within the same set of hierarchies. Um, the one just kind of maintains that the, 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 the people at the bottom of that may be lifted up, and the other one would say, well, no, these are fundamentally different. And then that's when you start getting into the, 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 the discourse of racial extinction, which again, you see in the free thinking press, and I like think of uh, in the in the the writings of Foote, who's one of the leaders of the National Secular Society. You know, he, you see this argument for um, the ultimate extinction of the Maori people in New Zealand. Uh, but where does he argue that from? Where does that like innate and inevitable extinction of the Maori people come from? And what you see is that he then circles back around and, well, the reason we can see that they're innately and inevitably going to be extinct is because they demonstrate their irrationality by embracing Christianity, right? Mm. And so it, it's, it's a bit of a, like, like there's that, that series of ambivalences and uncertainties. Is it a cultural civilizational hierarchy? Is it a fixed racial difference? He doesn't lay it clear and clean on the plate, and yet it is in sense both at the same time and neither being particularly edifying regardless. Hmm. Complicated indeed. Yes. Well, if we return to a broader overview of your findings, I'm wondering how would you characterize the intersection of imperial enlightenment and secularist ideas that we find in Victorian England overall? Is it possible to do that? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yes, or at least I try to. Um, I guess the, the, for me, the project of the book comes down to this one question, and it, it's maybe something that's bound up a little bit in, in some older debates around the nature of like working class thought in Britain, but it's that the empire is constitutive of secularism, right? And I think this is one of the things that this book project is trying to, to make the case for that without overstating it and trying to place empire at the core of every single particular decision or action or debate, because I don't think that would be accurate. Nevertheless, it's always there as part of the dimension of discussion that the, that both the political realm of empire, but also the field of knowledge generated by empire 
is something that is baked into secularism from its very origins, that the religious diversity of the empire and efforts to know those traditions and explain them and relate them back to uh, British society itself and the violent practicalities of, of imperial domination and rule all had implications for the system of belief that the free thinkers were trying to develop, their view, their expression of a universal human advance through political reform and education was always informed at, well, inevitably reformed at every moment by the facts of the empire, right? So it doesn't always come to the surface. It's not always the topic of debate. But I argue that if one looks across the, the publications of the 19th century British secularist movement, you will always see, even if it's just at the margins and only occasionally coming to the center, empire always kind of operating as part of um, the way in which their enlightenment and utilitarian and Republican view of a better world is portrayed. That strikes me as a really important observation. So that kind of brings me to my last question. And that is, do you think there are any vestigial aspects of this imperial influence on secularist thinking that persist uh, to contemporary iterations? Yes. Uh, but I, I just think like in the same way that in, in some really basic ways, the same way that these imperial and colonial ways of thinking are just baked into all of our ways of thinking in yeah, the modern Yeah, that's fair West. too, yeah. Uh, so I don't, like, I guess the, the thing is that you would say, of course that is true of the secularist movement, but I would say, but of course that is true of all of us. So it's not particular or unique to the secularist movement, although, I, you know, occasionally I think it has its own unique ways of articulating itself because of going back to like what I was saying about Holyoke and, and the one Brad law and the free thinkers more generally, which is that however much they wanted to change their own society and however expedient it could be to use the examples of other societies to kind of corrode the stuff that they don't like, that was still their benchmark. And, and you don't really see for the most part, the free thinkers as free thinkers embrace another tradition as a better alternative to the Western one that they had. Now you have a figure like Annie Besant who comes out of the secularist movement and becomes a theosophist and becomes a member of the Indian national Congress, but she doesn't do that as still a member of the secularist movement. She has become a theosophist by that point. So in that respect, I think this, this, this is something that is still very much with us. There is this very general, I think, dissatisfaction amongst secularist people with the ways in which our societies continue to not live up to the vision, perhaps, that we have of what a modern progressive secular society can and could be. And that view that idealized view of the civilization is often still used as the metric upon which the rest of the world is viewed. And I, and I, I don't think there's really necessarily a way to do otherwise. You can't just look from nowhere. There's no perfectly objective viewpoint. But baked into that viewpoint that we have are a lot of the condescensions and um, 
hierarchies embedded in our culture and in our tradition from that imperial past. And secularism is no different from the rest of the liberal social order in that respect. Fair. Well, Patrick, I've taken up a lot of your time this afternoon, this holiday afternoon, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Um, Yeah, so I am presently working as an editor uh, in the Office of Legislative Counsel um, for the the province of uh, British Columbia. So mostly what I spend my day doing is reading drafts of laws and regulations and editing them and uh, looking at long strings of A's and B's and C's and subparagraphs and sections and the like. So um, that may, that occupies most of my intellectual space because it's a full-time job. Uh, I have also in the last little while um, helped uh, co-write or or helped draft the, um, an internal history uh, of the BC Hansard for the uh, uh, BC parliament or sorry, the BC Legislative Assembly. Um, that's not out yet, and I, but I think it's going to be a digital publication coming soon to mark um, last year's 50th anniversary of Hansard here in BC. And uh, beyond that, I am playing around very slowly and very haphazardly with a um, historical horror novel that's premised on a lot of the same material dealing with like Owenism and uh, secular social thought and squiggly, terrible monsters. Really? That is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. It's, if it ever comes to fruition, I, I, I think it'll be fun, but at the moment it is mostly about a, a lot of like disparate notes and ideas. So it's not <laughs> much more than a, a series of ideas, but I do want it to be a thing. Oh, that's very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on this show today. I was really happy to be able to talk about your book. I think your book brings uh, sheds light on some really important and interesting dimensions. I'm always, I love, um, I love researching the British Empire and just all of the ripple out effects that it has on the way we live now and the way it changed the world then. So I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to have a chance to talk about the book. All right. Well, thanks so much, Patrick. Goodbye. Bye.